0: Well, if you guys haven't been with us, we've dove in and started this series called "Leaving Neverland," and um, we you've seen it's about it's about growing up. It's about really a conversation on spiritual immaturity and getting stuck spiritually. And what I want to encourage you guys to do is to think about something maybe you've forgotten it's kind of hard, isn't it? You forgot about it. Um, We forget all kinds of things. Maybe some of these old songs, you're like, I remember that song. You've forgotten it. Um, Perhaps for you, it's you forgot your keys. Anybody do that ever? You just forget them somewhere in your house. The worst right now seems to be forgetting your cell phone. Um, that, That is the one that I watch people panic, like, where's my, you do the tap. Any men do the tap? You're like, okay, good, good, good. Yep. Oh, no. Where is it? Where, you know, there's sudden panic. Your heart beats faster. I, I, I have that tendency to forget things. I just forgot a jacket at my friend's house uh, last night. And um, at the same time, the same friend, a few, um, about a year, several years ago, I've got four kids. And so I think it was at some point during, after service, I was getting to know his, his family. He was introducing me to his mom and his sister and stuff. And I'm, I'm watching them. They're like, oh, so how many kids you got to go? I got three. And say, there's one right there. That's, that's my daughter. And the, this is my son. And this is my son. And I'm like, and there's another one. Oh, oh, man, where is the, and I'm totally like panicking because the youngest one is missing. In the crowd of everybody on Sunday morning, I'm like looking around, where is it? And they're just laughing at me. I'm like, what are you laughing at? They're like, he's in your arm. I'm literally holding my son. <laughs> I had forgotten him. He's sitting there grinning at me. I'm like, wow, that's bad. So... uh... But, you, but, but forgetfulness is one of those interesting things. If, if you know the story of Peter Pan and you've ever ran into and you've seen the plays, Neverland is one of those places you actually forget. In fact, in the book written by um, Mr. Barry, he says that Peter actually kept people from remembering. He would use the power of Neverland to make them forget. So, because he feared that if they remembered their families, they remembered their parents, they would wanna leave Neverland and return to those whom they came from to have a family. What's interesting is there's a parallel in that. We've been talking about Neverland as a, as a land of spiritual immaturity, a place that is hard to leave because you've been there for so long. It's almost like, I don't want to grow up. I'm just going to stay right here. I came to know Jesus, and I'm good with that. And, and so what we said last week is there's a danger when we stay in Neverland You can get this concept of a mixed faith and you don't even realize it. Ideas that aren't actually from um, the Christian faith and from the understanding of Christianity slip in from other locations and we begin to believe them. They begin to influence our thinking because we don't have the strength or the maturity to defend ourselves. In this case, the way out of Neverland is to remember something. See, most people get stuck in Neverland long enough that that we begin to forget that there is this thing that that brought us into the faith and, and something that is extremely powerful that brought us into the faith. And just like Neverland where we forget those who brought us into the world, we begin to forget the gospel. And we begin to forget the power of the gospel. Now, I'm going to get into this because all of us are like, I didn't forget the gospel. I know what the gospel is. I don't have to worry about the gospel. But but hold on, because Paul in his letter to the Colossians is going to kind of lay it out in a different way. He's going to lay it out in a manner that I think should challenge us, begin to enlighten us about what it means to really grow and why remembering the gospel to grow is one of the most important things that you and I could do. In fact, if you want... You open up to Colossians chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. We provide Bibles that are under the seat. So you can grab one right there, slip it out, and you'll find it there on page 983. And the Bible's provided. It's the same version I'm using. So you'll be able to read right along and understand what I'm looking at. If you've got a Bible app on your phone, you can open that now too. Feel free to just kind of be with us in the text, and, and what Paul is going to do is he's going to he's writing a letter to a church in Colossi Colossi again last week we, re- we said it's a city in modern Turkey. It is an ancient city that's no longer found in fact they haven't even excavated it yet. they know where it is, but they can't get to it because the Turkish government won't allow archaeological expo- exploration of the tell and, and so we know enough from history though that this location is, is pretty robust. We know that a man named brought the gospel there, that it's about an eight-year-old church when he writes this letter, and that they're going through a a difficult time because a mixture from their culture has begun to work into their faith. And Paul's addressing this issue with a simple letter, and he begins this way. He says, verse three, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So that just starts the reference. Note that this text, what we're going to be reading today, is a prayer. Paul is in a sense saying, you know, when we go to pray to God, when we talk to him and we think about you, this is what we thank him for. This is what we remember about you. Why would Paul need to tell them what he remembers about them, except that he wants them to remember it. There's something essential about what he's telling them in the text. Not just like, hey, look how great I am. (laughs) I remember you like this when I pray. No, it's a technique. I'm telling you what I remember about you. So you'll remember what it is about you. And so what is it that Paul remembers and that he's always praying for about these men? In verse 4, it begins, "...since we heard your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this, this hope you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth." Just as you learn from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now, Paul begins, and he lays oh, a lot of stuff out there. It's taken a while to un- unpack this, but it begins with a central piece there in the middle, and it's about the gospel. He, he says, look, all of this faith, all this hope, all this love that you, that you have, it comes from this thing called the gospel, which is bearing fruit. What he wants them to remember is this gospel is powerful. It's, it's bearing fruit. And to be mature, to mature ourselves up, we need to remember that this gospel is powerful. Because the fastest thing that can happen to us as Christians is as your day goes on, as your life moves forward, the fastest thing that occurs to those of us who are following Jesus is we forget the power of what happened when you first came to your new life. There is something that happens. And if you're not a Christian, you get a kind of peek under the hood in the sense of what happens in a Christian's life. A Christian has a moment, has an event, or, or a series of moments where suddenly they, they were one way and there was this powerful event that occurred around this message called the gospel. And suddenly there was a change. Something shifted. Something broke. Something was released inside of them. They woke up. I've heard stories of people seeing it like, wow, it's like, Technicolor. There's actually green grass. There's actually blue sky. I've never noticed the world before. Other people have said, it was like, I suddenly was aware of my insides and all the mess I was. And yet it was gone. The guilt was gone. The, the shame was gone. The pain was gone. There was this sudden transformation. Paul describes it as, as in this movement later in the book of Colossians. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and your uncircumcision of your flesh. And the picture here is somebody who is stuck. Unmovable. They they they're, they're they're in a word as we would call it addicted, habitually stuck. No matter what they do, no matter how they do it, they try to leave it. In fact, you may not even be aware of it because you're dead. And I'll tell you what I've seen it time and time again as I talk to different people. They don't even see their own sin. They don't even recognize it in themselves. They're unaware. And he says you were. Dead in your trespasses and sins, you're on circumcision of your flesh. And God made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. This He set aside, nailing to the cross. The picture here is this message of the gospel. That humanity found ourselves marred in sin, in rebellion against God, hurting other people, hurting ourselves, and rebelling against God. That's, That's the definition of sin. And when we were doing this, we found ourselves so stuck, so addicted to it, so addicted to our own ideas. We see it. We know the problem. We call it evil. We call it injustice. We call it different things. And we try all these different ways to overcome it, but we can't. Doesn't matter how many regulations we create. Doesn't matter how much psychology we do. Doesn't have, matter how much of these other things we attempt. The sin still remains in the heart. It's the people that are the problem. And yet, Jesus Christ comes and He makes us alive on the cross because on the cross, He takes that sin and all that stuff, which should be punished rightly because it is unjust, should be punished rightly because it is evil, should be punished rightly because it is wrong and has broken this world. And instead of us being punished by God, who has the right, he forgives us and punishes his son, Jesus, on the cross. He cancels the record of debt that stood against us and its legal demands of punishment. And he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Almost as if there was this list of what we had done wrong. He just took it and he went, nailed, done, defeated. Not only that, Jesus rose from the dead, defeating death. And so sin and death are defeated. And so the interesting thing is in the next line that won't show up, but it says in verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, meaning he's disarmed not not the earthly rulers and authorities, but the demonic world and the darkness and the evil ideas that incorporate and work through us. And he says he disarmed them. What were their armament? Sin and death. He says they're done their influence is over. And, and there's this beauty about the picture of setting people free, of setting people free, free through the resurrection and a power that happens when we understand that and receive it. Don't you remember it? I mean, those of you who are followers of Christ, those of you who have come to be to be born again, as the scripture calls it, don't you remember what you were like before? Man, I do. And I was running after everybody's everybody, just wanting them to, to care about me, to, 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 to be in the in crowd, to be with people. And I didn't matter what it was, where it was from, I became a person who was trying to prove myself through my accomplishments. So I became arrogant and proud. I didn't see it, but I was. I became needy. And so I'd run around and I'd do whatever people wanted, people-pleasing people, making sure that they were okay. And that's, you know, smoking, because, hey, people like smoking, that girl likes smoking. And we're doing whatever it took just to be accepted. Man, it's so and so weak. We do it all the time. How many likes and how many clicks and how many things do we try to do? It's just part of the modern problem. One of my friends we were talking, we were saying, it's like junior high has erupted, never stopped. You know, nowadays it feels like I still live in the popularity game. And yet I'm not affected by it because I found that in Jesus Christ, one day there was something that shifted. It was He was on me, he was after me, and then I was awake. Suddenly I realized I didn't need these things. I didn't, I didn't want these things. There was a repentance that occurred in my heart and I received what Jesus had and I was different. My family said I was different. My life has been different ever since. The person I am now would never have occurred. I know the person I would have been. I've looked at it. I sat across from it in different kinds of meetings and looked in the eyes of people who I would have been had it not been for Jesus. There's a power that occurred there. What is it for you? See, the danger is some of us, we, we go through this process and we get into there and the deception occurs. We begin to just sit down, we settle down, we get caught in Neverland, we forget the power. In fact, you begin to get further and further away from you, you begin to believe that, hey, I wasn't really, the, I'm not really that different from who I was. Because so much time has gone on you being you and you haven't grown much more. You start to go, hey, you know, it's really not that big of a deal. The second thing that happens is because we don't really share the gospel when we're in Neverland. We don't really let it out to other people. You don't really see other people being impacted by the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross to bear our sins because God loves us and doesn't want to send anyone to hell. I mean, that's a huge message. And we go, yeah, people don't need that anymore. People don't really want that anymore. We begin to believe this lie or this deception that you know if I, if I do nice things and I'm a nice person then and I'm tolerant then hey people will people will want to listen to me but everybody's nice and everybody's tolerant and everybody's this way what makes the difference? We begin to just think yeah this gospel thing doesn't have a lot of power and so it really you lock yourself into Neverland because it's very clear here he says it is it bears fruit notice again he says beginning at the end of verse five, of this you have heard before the word of, in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and first understood the grace of God and truth. And what's interesting is here is that when we remember where we were at, when we remember the power, we remember, hey, nobody's beyond hope. So what happens for people stuck in Neverland and if you're, an, if you're a non-Christian and you're here today because you're checking things out and you've met a Christian who's like cruel and mean and like arrogant about their faith, it's because they're stuck in immaturity. And what happens is somehow where, somewhere in the zone when they forgot the power of the gospel, they forgot that it saves everyone regardless of where they're at. That there's hope for every human being on the planet. And God has barred no one back from the gospel But it's available to every single person. And we need to be preaching it to every single person. But if we feel like, yeah, you can't come in, that's immaturity. That's not what the Bible says. It's bearing fruit in the whole world. It's out there for everybody. And Christ wants to give it. In fact, look at verses 7 and 8. It says, you learned it just as you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. It's not that Epaphras is awesome. It's that Christ used him. I mean, you could almost change this, right? it, It could read in this way. Just as you learned it from John, our beloved fellow servant. Just as you learned it from Rebecca, our beloved fellow servant. Just as you learned it from, why don't you put your name in there? You see, the thing is that God wants to give away his gospel. Christ wants to get it out. He just wants to give it out through each other, through you. And how many of us are unwilling to even give it out because we're afraid we're going to mess it up? No, it's Christ giving it through you. It's Christ wanting to work it in your life, to press it through your life. The point is that the gospel works today and it can come through you as well. It can come through you too. And it's still working in the world. Guys, there are more Christians in China than there are in the United States now. And it's multiplying every single day by roughly ten to 15,000 people. That's explosive growth. There are more Christians in South America, Africa, and the Asian continents than all the West. Christianity, Western Christians are the minority for the Christian faith today. That's how powerful this fruit has blossomed in South America, in Africa, in Asia, and even in the Muslim world. One of the big things about the Iranian the, uh, this stuff going on in Iran is because the churches have grown exponentially. The imams are freaking out. They're clamping down on the church harder and harder and harder, which is causing the church to expand faster and faster and faster. As people are looking at the violence going on from the various different aspects of their Muslim culture that they didn't agree with, they've abandoned it. And many refugee camps are running to Christianity. Because the message is going out that God loves them. He's forgiven them if they'll simply do nothing but accept Jesus Christ. And it's a powerful thought that this fruit is bearing fruit all over the world. And it continues to bear fruit today. There are still churches all over the world, all over our country that are seeing people continue to come to know and believe in Jesus. And that's the reason why is because the gospel is powerful. Why is the gospel powerful? Why should it be powerful? It doesn't seem powerful. And the answer is because we're stuck in Neverland. And the gospel doesn't seem powerful because it doesn't seem true. But the gospel has power because it's true. Now watch this. And this is important as we get into this. Notice Paul's verbiage here. Let's go back through this one more time. Look down at verse 5. Of this you have heard before in the word of the, say it with me, truth. The gospel. Which has come to you and indeed and the whole world is bearing fruit and growing. As it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in Truth. Here's a weird thing. The word true. Truth. Gosh, you want to talk about something that has gotten fuzzy. What does it mean for something to be true anymore? See, we understood this years ago. We knew that uh, something was true if, when, when something was true according to reality. That's how they would say it. Look, it's true. Either it's happened or it hasn't happened. Either it is or it isn't. That's how truth works. That's basic logic. A or not A. So if I say Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it's either true or the other statement is true. Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. That's all you've got. Now, you can explain why you think Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead. And I explain why I think Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. But now we're talking about truth. We're not talking about the idea that if it works for you, great. I'm glad Jesus made you better. And I'm glad you're a nicer person, a happier, and it's good. And you got a great community. Woo-hoo! That has nothing to do with the truth value of whether Jesus Christ rose from the dead or not. And the thing is, the gospel is only powerful if you will engage the question of whether Jesus Christ rose from the dead or not. Because if he didn't, we shouldn't be doing this. And here's why. Because the scriptures indicate we're blaspheming God. Because not only are we making up something about God that he didn't do, we're claiming Jesus Christ was God on earth. And that would be pretty insulting to the true God of heaven. So here's a lot at stake in just a simple question of, is Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Is that a truth that happened in history? Or is it not? And and you can go, go, oh, it it is, kind of. Well, that's not a true statement then. Well, it's a nice story and it helps you. That's not what I'm talking about. The gospel is powerful because it says it's truth. And the concept of truth in this time period when Paul is using it is that of it happened or it didn't. And that's what we have to wrestle with. And you see, when you begin to dive in, you begin to examine the historical credence and you begin to look at the eyewitnesses that wrote and you see what they have said about what was going on. It comes down to basic four principles. Hey, these people had a man who died named Jesus on a cross. Historically accurate across all kinds of lines. You're going to read all kinds of stuff coming out of Easter that he didn't even exist. There's only about three scholars on the planet that actually believe that. In a university that's credible. Everybody else says, yep, Jesus existed. We truly know he died on the cross. It's attested by Josephus and Tacitus and several other non-biblical sources. Now you know that Jesus died on the cross. Where in the world does his body go? Because the tomb was empty. We, we just broke down the tomb of this, this holy sepulchre just this year, dug into it a little bit more, and, and they tested it. And yes, it is a first century tomb and has been venerated as that tomb since that day. We've been visiting it constantly and constantly. There's such a line of tradition, it's, it's ridiculous. Now, you could say, hey, they found the body. Why don't they bring it out and just toss it out there and say, there's Jesus, he's dead. There would be no movement. He did die, and the tomb was empty. Then, why in the world the disciples believe? Not that they were right. Why would they believe that Jesus was risen from the dead and they saw him? The disciples believed they saw him. It's not a hallucination. You can't have that corporately. You can't have a you can't have a corporate uh, mushroom cloud. That, you know, people getting high and going like, "It's Jesus." That doesn't happen. They've done tests. Believe me. There's there's entire um, doctoral dissertations on this stuff out there. Look, Jesus was attested to be alive, especially by two men that should never have believed it, namely the guy who wrote this very letter. His name was Paul. The man was a rebel. He was killing Christians. He was a, a zealous, a zealot for Judaism. And when he was about to go arrest Christians, ran into the resurrected Jesus, who knocked him down on the ground, blinded him, and converted him on the spot, and he became the number one promoter of Christianity, let alone his brother James who was clearly anti-Jesus. Every book that we know of said, I don't believe in my brother. And then suddenly something occurred and James flipped and became the leader of the Jerusalem church. Something happened. And the only answer we seem to have that fits all the four basic pieces that the majority, vast majority of scholars agree on is that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, if Jesus rose from the dead, I have a tendency to go with the guy who rose from the dead, and when the guy who rose from the dead says there's a hell, it doesn't matter what I feel about it. Guess what? I don't like the idea. I don't know anybody who likes the idea of hell. If you like the idea of hell, you're probably stuck in Neverland. You're a little immature because it's not a fun idea. The idea of human beings being punished for their sin with the, angel, the angelic hosts who have, been, who have fallen and rebelled is a horrific concept. Just? Yes. Horrific? Yes. Do I like it? No. Does that make it not true? That has nothing to do with my feelings. Truth has nothing to do with everything that that is true out there. You can have a feeling about, but it doesn't change whether it's true. Same thing with heaven. I may feel like I want everybody to go there. It doesn't change what heaven is. And when I examine my evidence for what heaven is, I go with the guy who rose from the dead. Because if Jesus rose from the dead... And he's not just some random teacher, it's a mystical Jesus. No, this is the Jewish Jesus. He has very clear beliefs about things, and he says, This is how it is. In fact, one of his clear beliefs was, I am God, and I've come to earth because I love you, and I'm here to take your sin from you so you can have a relationship with my Father. And when he says that, the question is, Do you trust him or do you not? Do you trust the one who rose from the dead or do you not? See, when it's true, suddenly it's powerful. Because if it's true, if it's true that Jesus rose from the dead, then it is true that God has forgiving sins for free just by receiving what Jesus did on the cross. It's not about your church going. It's not about your prayer life. It's not about how nice you are. It's not about how tolerant you are. You could be the worst person in the world and at the end of your life realize how horrible you are. You need Jesus to take your sin because you can't do it. And he lets you in. It's an equal playing field for every human being. How much more just can you get? And this is the beauty of what it is. If it's true, it is powerful because it changes our opinion on what God is doing. And then suddenly you begin to remember this is powerful because this is true. He truly rose from the dead. If he truly rose from the dead, then I'm truly saved. And that means what Jesus said is true and there's a big hope coming. And so what you find suddenly the gospel produces something else it produces growth in you it produces something called fruit notice verses 3 and 4 and 5 sorry it actually states what those fruits are beginning with verse 3 it says we always thank god the father of our lord jesus christ when we pray for you since we have heard of your faith in christ jesus and the love that you have for all the saints well, where would that come from because that term right there at the beginning of verse 5 is because it comes from The hope laid for you in heaven. The hope gives birth to a faith and a love. How in the world does that work? Well, well, here's how it works. The gospel produces a great hope for heaven. And that great hope for heaven grows you. You see, a a horror has occurred in, in the world. Men once dreamed of what it was to walk in eternity. Men once knew that when they had the presence of God, their lives would be complete and they would have, they're would like a, like a glass meeting its resonance. When the sound came, the glass shakes. Our souls would resonate with God because we're made in his image. There was a satisfaction that would be found in the presence of the maker. There would be a freedom that was found when sin was burned away and that righteousness was implanted in our souls and you are free to live in a world without evil and deceit and disgust and horror that we live with every single day. And there was a hope for that day when Jesus would return and bring that world to us. But when we sit in Neverland and the gospel gets small and the power of it seems weak, heaven shrinks. It gets so small, so pathetic that we talk about it like floating on a cloud, strumming a harp. Singing forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Listening to a guy preach a sermon for 92 million years, right? (laughs) Heaven becomes this kind of pathetic location to the point where I used to know people would say, I'd rather go to hell, that's where the party is. And here's the problem. When eternity shrinks, something breaks. Something happens to to, to our focus and to our ability to grow up in this world. When When heaven is small, your hope is small. And so here's what's odd. That hope doesn't grow anything. In fact, let me just define hope quickly for you guys. Just so you know what I'm talking about when hope, because hope can sound like wish fulfillment. That's not how the Bible uses the word hope. Hope is confident anticipation of God's promises. That's what hope is. I like to put it this way. You've got the idea of hoping for Christmas present. You're like, I hope I get this for Christmas. My, my view of hope in the Bible is this. It's confident anticipation. I'm confident I'm getting this and I can't wait till it gets here. That kind of hope is actually found when you click on the Amazon click by, you know, one click. And then in, somewhere off that goes into the cloud, flies into Amazon's database. All this stuff comes up. This order comes up and this robot goes. Grabs this thing, throws it in a box. Some guy ties it up, throws it in the mail. And you know with a confident anticipation, your book, your gadget, your whatever you're looking for is on its way. And you can track it. See, that's the promise of God. If Jesus rose from the dead and it's true, then God's promises are true. And when he promises you that he's coming back and he's bringing with him a redemption in which all of our sin is burned away, all of our injustice is gone, all crying and shame is gone, let's just read it instead. How about that? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling of place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Amen. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's the promise of a hopeful expectation. And and it's on its delivery path. And the Christian, when they have a big vision of God, not just of being satisfied in God, not just having the beauty of who God is, not just the satisfaction of seeing the creativity where it says pleasures are at his right hand forevermore, that he is the inventor of the pleasures of this world, but that he puts us on a new earth in which the cultural expressions and the beauty of the arts and the wonder of the sciences don't cease, but they continue on and on and on in human exploration as he's implanted it into our hearts for his glory. And we enjoy the purpose that we've been made forever and ever and ever. And as heaven grows in your mind, your hope grows as well in an anticipation of that day. Now, if you want more information about heaven, a few years back, we actually did an entire series on the destinations that you go to. And we had it on heaven and on the new earth, and on hell, and, we, and I advise you guys to go check those out. It's called uh, Travel Plans, and it's, it's a great little series that we did. But it should expand your vision of heaven, I would hope. But as you expand that vision of heaven, it should expand your hope. And here's what happens when it expands hope. When, ha- when hope grows, your resilience here grows, In fact, hope makes us faithful to Christ Jesus. It says, we've heard of your faith in Christ. We've heard of your faith. Faith is in two terms. It's my trust in God and my resilience in that trust. Those two things go together. And so when I trust, hey guys, there's going to be suffering in this world. Amen? I woke up with hip pain and it hasn't gone away for over two weeks. And I'm like, welcome to 40, right? That's kind of like, oh, this is going to be here for a long, long time. Back pain, chronic pain. You know what happens is when when you have a medical problem, you know what everybody tells me to do? Hey, go see a doctor. I go, you're right. I should go see a doctor. I will. But that doesn't give me hope. I've been to enough doctors, and I've seen enough people go through enough medical procedures and get better. And guess what happens to a lot of those people who get better? They all die. Just to be honest, having known somebody who hasn't seen a doctor eventually didn't die, they can sustain their life a little longer, But we haven't cured death. And I'm going to see the doctor. Don't get me wrong. You're going to see the doctor and you should. But don't put your hope in the doctor. Even a doctor would tell you don't put their hope in you, in them. The same thing is true. You're out of money. You don't know where to go. You don't know where to turn. You know what the world tells you? Get credit. It's always better to get some more money that you don't have to pay for till later. In other words, kick the can of problems down the road so It's worse. And guess what comes in the end? Death. You thought I was going to say something else. The reason I say death is because guess what? You're like, oh, that debt's gone. Yeah, but it's now a problem because all that stuff you bought with that debt is gone too. What did the money get you? Jesus put it this way. What is it to gain the whole world and to lose your soul? Money's not something you put your hope in. Money's not something you put your trust in. Money's something that you use as a tool to bless and help other people. It's a, it's a tool that becomes something we use for love, not for gain and overwhelm things. But there's this situation that when we're in the struggle, when we're in the trial, when we're in the midst of something, where do I turn? What do I lean on? I lean on people. Then they all die. Okay, no, I lean on, um, on something else. What, what do I lean on? You lean on hope. They can't take the hope of the promises of God from you. Nobody can. Because God's promises are locked in history, far in the past that humanity can't touch or deal with. It is locked so far back there that what happened is remaining. What happened? Jesus rose from the dead. The promises are still true. The hopeful anticipation, oh goody it's coming, is still there with you no matter what you're going through. And when you're sitting there in the midst of your misery, when the tax police have come and all the mess is surrounding you, and suddenly you are dying because you have cancer, you don't crumble because your hope isn't here no matter how good it looks. But if you're stuck in Neverland, you're going to regret losing things here because you forgot how big what is coming is. Now, what occurs then is something interesting. It's called endurance. Watch this in Romans chapter five. It says, though in through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance because of the faith. It produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. What's character? It's called growing up. The long, the thing is, if you're, Belief in the gospel is small and your hope is small. You do not have the ability to stand under the weight of the troubles and endure. And if you cannot endure, you will not grow character and you will not become mature. Maturity comes from bearing up under the sufferings of life by having a great hope. A hope That is set in a faith in that Jesus' promises were true. And suddenly, that endurance gives you strength. That strength builds character. That character builds hope. That hope gives you faith, which helps you have endurance, which builds character, which gives you hope. And this is the cycle of growth. But if your hope is small, so will be your faith, and so will be your endurance, and so will be your love. It's no wonder our world has taken love, which used to mean charity, a term that used to mean the self sacrifice of yourself for the betterment of another person in their need, and we turned it into feelings. Feelings are easy, feelings are cheap. Babies feel a lot of things, but babies can't sacrifice. It takes endurance and the ability to realize the thing that I have I should not hold on to but give away for the sake of another. But if you can't give it away because your hope is set on earth, you can't grow. But a great hope produces great love. When I have a great hope that I will see all the things that I need and I will have all those things come to me and I will find, oh my gosh, that Jesus' promises are true. I will be willing to give away things. I will be willing to sacrifice my life. I will be willing to sacrifice my health. I will be willing to sacrifice my stuff. I will be willing to sacrifice whatever God has given me because I live life with an open hand for other people to come and take as they need and to put in as they need. And God then blesses each other through each other because it's not about here. That's how hope produces love. It enables you to be a self-sacrificial person. But if your hope is here, hold on. Get as much as you can. Can what you get and sit on the can because it's yours. But if we're going to live in a life of love, you're going to have to have a hope beyond this world. Where whatever you give away is rewarded and returned. Whatever you invest in others becomes an investment in eternity to great reward before God. This is what hope produces. This is why people and doctors in Samaritan's Purse ran to the Ebola virus and even got it and caught it while trying to stop it. That's why Christians have routinely ran towards the worst disasters of the world and created a culture that we now live in that runs to disasters and not away. That was not the way of the ancient world. That was not the way of most third world countries until the gospel came. But that is the way of the world now because of one man named Jesus. Because of the gospel that he presented that was true. That shaped the hearts of people. That shaped the way that they lived, the way that they loved, and the way that we share. This is what we have here, guys. You want to grow? We need to escape Neverland by knowing the gospel and by seeing the power. You know, we can forget a lot of things. One of the things I forgot... Was interesting. One day, I went outside, and my wife and I were staring at our, our grass. It had gotten brown, only in one weird spot. It was kind of this weird arc. And I'm like, I'm like, I swear it's the sun bouncing off the window, hitting this, burning the grass up. I know that's what it is. Examining, examining, examining. We looked at it for weeks. We're like watching the sun doing stuff. One day, I finally go outside, and I go, "Aren't the sprinklers on?" I forgot to turn them back on. It wasn't the sun because I forgot to turn them on. What the grass needed to grow wasn't getting on the grass. And when we forget the gospel, what you need to grow is not coming into your life. And the power of that gospel is not flowing through you to produce maturity. Don't forget the power of the gospel. It will grow you beyond Neverland. Let's pray. Father, I just want to lift up those in this room who are followers of you right now, and I want to thank you for them and ask that you would help us to remember where you've taken us from and where you're sending us to, that we might be people who understand the great hope of eternity and be willing to make great sacrifices on earth because we are simply passing through. It's not ours to keep. It's not ours to hold on to. But what a great, great, great promise you've given us. May we, may we live in that. But I also want to talk um, to some of you. I'm, I'm switching over from talking to God to talking to some of you here. Um, today, maybe you've come and, and you've you have not yet wrestled through wh- whether you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But can I tell you something? God loves you so much. Yes, he became a man. He died on a cross and he rose from the dead. Why? Why? Because there is a place called hell. I know it's not fun, it's not cool, and it's not enjoyable to talk about. But it's his just punishment of injustices we've done to others. Pain we've caused ourselves who are made in his image in rebellion to God. And he can't let us into his home in eternity in heaven. And so we wind up in the penal system of eternity. But God doesn't want you there. In fact, the scripture says he doesn't want anyone to die in that way. And so he came and he died on the cross to bear your sins. If you will simply do one thing, and that is receive the gift. That's it. You receive the gift that God has given of Jesus Christ on the cross to bear your sins and rise from the dead to be the victor over your death, to be the victor over your sin, and to give you a new life. And this is not a matter of what works. This is just a matter of truth, whether it happened or not. And if you, if you believe it happened, then maybe it's time to put your trust in it. I want to give you a chance to put your trust in it today. To trust and receive the gift that God has given you. Right where you are tonight, you can just simply turn to God with, and talk to him on your own. And maybe you'll say something like this if you'd like. You say, God, I want to receive your gift. I'm going to trust you that you've forgiven me of my sins. That you're going to give me access to heaven because of what Jesus did for me. I trust you. And if that's where you are right now and and you're praying maybe something like that or, or you've made a decision to receive that and you're just saying that in your own heart, I'll give you a chance just to let let me and the team know that this, that's what you've done. We, we want to just be able to pray over you and connect with you in some way. And that's you just, here's what you do. You're going to be brave. It's going to be, you're going to be worried about it. Don't be worried about it. But you're just saying, hey, that's me. You're just putting your hand up. You're saying, yeah, I received that tonight. As you do that, I'm just going to pray over you. So if that's you today and you made that decision, go ahead. Just let me know. I'd love to pray. God, for the rest of us then, we're just here. We're here to celebrate what you've given us in the great hope of heaven. Thank you for those who are baptized tonight who, who have um, made that decision to follow you and, and make it clear. We pray that you would just um, begin to work on us and, and shape us to be those who are used by you to give that message away. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, tonight we've got our prayer team available up here and they're going to be available around the room as well for your need in prayer. Say you have something going on in your life and you'd just like somebody to pray over it, come, come see one of them. They'd love to pray with you. But in addition to that, if you have not yet come to that decision, hey, I'm going to receive Jesus and you're curious and you've got questions and you see the truth thing and you don't know quite what to do, we want to challenge you that, to engage the question. There are lots of great questions. Well, how do we? What about all those other books of the Bible, or what, or or not in the Bible, or what about all the, uh, what, what about all those other ideas out there? And then Jesus' disciples stole the body. What about that stuff? Well, if those are the kind of questions you're wondering about, well, awesome. We appreciate that you have those questions. We have a place that we would love for you to bring those questions to. It's called Starting Point, and maybe you'd be interested in. Hey, sign up and having a conversation in, in, in that uh, place for that. And it's available. A lot of people are doing that right now. And um, it's, uh, they come every so many months. And so we'd invite you to check it out. Come ask those questions. Engage. And uh, don't just assume we would love to engage you with the evidence and the conversation about truth. And so if you're interested in that, you can head on out to our Connection Central after this song and, and, and hook up there and find out. But what we're going to do now, if we're going to stand, we're going to sing this uh, awesome song about the amazing grace of our God.